This is The Crucible. The JRTC Experience. This is Light Fighter Lessons. In this series, we discuss infantry warfighting skills and lessons learned in a decisive action training environment for large-scale combat operations at JRTC. Hi, I'm Colonel Matt Hardman, the Commander of Operations Group here at the Joint Readiness Training Center, and we're joined again today by Sergeant First Class Manship uh, from the Muldoon Platoon, 3rd Platoon, uh, Bravo Company 2505. So welcome back. Uh, it's been... Uh, it's been a minute since we saw you back in November, and uh, you just got done with uh, your rotation, 2307. So uh, tell me, uh, you know, w what's happened, right? Uh, talk me all the way through it from uh, leaving Fort Bragg, RSOI, uh, all the way through the operation, live fire to now. Sure. Uh, I mean, thanks for having me back, sir. I, I appreciate the opportunity to come and talk about the experience. and. Uh, so um, outload, you know. This we, is kind of like confessional, right? It's a little yeah. therapy, all right? It, it definitely is, sir. Um, so outload, we, uh, we, we, of course, develop our manifest, get all of our SI. We, we're, we're taking a look at, like, the equipment that we're going to use in the box and, and making some tough decisions on, on weight versus capabilities. Um, we, were, we were actually leaning ahead. Uh, very heavily into the planning process, at least on the, the NCO side of, of balancing the, the weight to work to, to resupply issue because um, you know, 60 pounds is, is the limit at which we can jump with. And that's, it sounds like a lot. And it is a lot when you put it on your back, but when, you're, when you, you have a, a layout you know, with your platoon and you're looking at what 60 pounds looks like, 60 pounds is... It's not a lot. Yeah, you start making trade-offs between socks and chapstick. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I had people in my platoon that were cutting toothbrushes in half that's, and cutting razors in half. That's where we want to be. It was, it was grams equal ounces, ounces equal pounds. Um, so we were, the, the lead-up to the deployment was, was very heavily focused on you know, balancing the capabilities and, and asking the, the questions of, like, how do we bring these capabilities to the fight, and then when are these capabilities going to arrive at the fight if we can't jump it? Um, and so we, we leaned heavily into that, into the, the planning process, go through all the manifesting, IMC, FMC, Get on a bus, stop at Bucky's on the way down. Of course. Do you get anything good at Bucky's? Uh, the barbecue brisket sandwich is uh, is a must get. Um, okay, that's a pro tip. The, gotta gotta go to Bucky's on the way down to Fort Polk. Right. Um, We're not sponsored by Bucky's. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we we arrived and and you know got placed into our our trailers or our building and. Um, then just immediately started going into RSOI, drawing all of the miles, zeroing the miles, uh, miles for vehicles. How did you, uh, how did you manage that as a platoon sergeant? Like, how did how did you run things in RSOI to maximize the time? I mean, I th I think the most valuable thing that you can do there is key leader placement, 
because you cannot be everywhere at once and you um, you can't ensure everything is important throughout that process there's there's no there's nothing in the process that doesn't deserve you know the maximum effort and the only way that you can accomplish all of the things within RSOI with the amount of effort that it deserves is by placing a key leader there at the friction point that is going to take it seriously. And then starting with the why, you know, Simon's Cinex, start with why. Um, explaining to people the importance of taking it seriously, like, hey, I know that this line is long, and I know you've been waiting here for three hours just to get the opportunity to zero your miles, but don't take it for granted. This is the one opportunity you have to zero your miles laser. And if you go through this really quick because you want to save yourself five minutes right now or because you're tired of waiting in line, you're going to feel the, the effects throughout the entire duration of the box. Um, take the, the javelin class seriously. Which apparently Two-Panther did. <laughs> we, we we did do pretty well with AT weapons. I'm yeah. actually very very happy with um with the way that that went. And um, how how did you in RSOI? How did you manage? Um, there's a tendency in RSOI for people to sprint to the start line. How did you manage uh, your platoons' rest, nutrition, hydration, fitness? Well, I mean I I think that I am lucky in the sense that we have we have created a culture in which that is something that my squad leaders are constantly thinking about and constantly providing feedback on. Um, the, the work to rest ratio and, and just understanding the, the large scale of RSOI and understanding that like the fight doesn't start until I, for most people, until you arrive in the box, I would argue that the the real work begins for us when we go through you know the the airborne timeline. Yep. Um, that's definitely a smoker, but the I think the priority just went to making sure that people were well prepared mentally, that they were physically rested, and it's just about balancing who goes where and who does what. Like, okay, this individual. Um, had to do this class four yard detail that required 12 hours out in the sun this day. All right, well then let's make the common sense decision and, and switch him out and, and have somebody else pull some of the weight. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very lucky in the sense that in my platoon there's a culture of people don't, people aren't happy watching somebody else pull the weight. Um, so it was, it was very much a sense of, Yeah, that doesn't hey, just happen. Right, we got to right. create that kind of culture. Well, yeah, and um, you know, I'm I'm lucky to to have that kind of culture and have the leaders within my formation that that perpetuate it. Awesome. Um, did you find yourself uh, having to, to tell junior soldiers, "Hey, you, you need to get some sleep"? Uh, during RSOI, yes. Like it, it was more a conversation with my team leaders, um, junior soldiers. Not as much, but I did find my team leaders who are superstars getting together, talking through plans, rehearsing things, like just developing products and, and trying to just go above and beyond, which is why they are who they are. 
and, and why they're in the position they're in. And there does come a point where you have to be like, hey, guys, like, the, the plan is the plan at this point. Like, there is a planning horizon. And you, you can't, if you continue to change things, if you, you continue to add fuel to the fire, like, it's only going to confuse yeah. your, your own people. Um, so completely acknowledge that everything that you're doing is well-intended, but there's a point at which you just got to focus on yourself. And just you just gotta, you yeah. just gotta get focused. Yeah, yeah. As uh, I commanded Bravo Company, and the guy took command of, you know, one of the one of the rules he had is that rest is a weapon, right? And the the ability to to not show up at the airborne timeline dehydrated and gassed is like pretty important. All right. So, uh, what what do you think like the most important thing that you all got done in RSOI that maybe isn't kind of common to all? That is not common to all, yeah. sir. Um, oh, that's a good question. I think that the the most important thing we did during RSOI was probably had a had a grown up conversation about the whys and how we were going to conduct ourselves in the box, and it was it was very it was an adult conversation of like, hey, this is. This is who we are as a platoon. This is what JRTC is as an event or as, as a training event. And this is how we're going to move forward. These are the expectations for how you're going to conduct yourself in the box and how you're going to treat your people in the box and how you're going to treat Geronimo in the box and how you're going to treat the OCs in the box. And I think that that, that adult conversation set the tone and the expectations for how we were going to do business. Um, and I think that that was valuable because my prior experience as a guest OC, like you could tell that there were some organizations that didn't have that conversation. Right. <laughs> and uh, those expectations were not set. And, and some people had different impressions of you know, what the expectations were. Yeah, and I mean, it's a, everything you're describing is um, setting people up to learn. Right, and to get the most out of this event. I mean, this is a really, really expensive training event, right? And primarily focused at battalion and brigade level, but um, but a ton of opportunity to learn and grow if you're in the right mindset for it. Um, okay, so t talk me through the airborne timeline and your role in the airborne timeline. So um, I was a primary jump master for Chalk 106. Oh, yeah. Um, I had my battalion commander on my bird. And I had uh, the Brigade XO on my bird. And, you know, we were, the, the intention was to go through uh, an in-flight rig. So <clears throat> we had about half of the people that a C-130 would typically hold. So reduced numbers, uh, good jump master to jumper ratio. By all, you know, by all planning factors, it was, it was going to be a, a smooth operation. So we go through... IMC, IMCZZ, we identify some key pieces of equipment, make sure that they know how to rig their, their equipment correctly, get to FMC, and then that's when things start getting hard. <coughs> Never happens in a, a large airborne operation. Never. Everything goes smooth. <laughs> <laughs> it was, um, you know, everybody, of course, is fighting for the mock doors, so there's the chaos of, like, maintaining accountability of your people, you know, in a, in a very large um, you know, crowd of, of 
folks that are going through the same thing that you are. So you go through your, your search tee and your pre-jump, you go through sustained airborne training, and then we arrive in vicinity of the aircraft, and I talk to the air crew, we do our ramp side, and one of our doors is down. It's like, okay, all right, so. If you're not familiar with the airborne, that's not awesome. No, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was not not great. So we, we have the conversations with the, the brigade air team, and we're gonna continue to execute. We're just gonna jump out of one door. Not a, not ideal, um, but it perfectly, you know, within reason, we can still execute this timeline and still get people to the ground for JRTC. So we get all of our equipment on, uh, get our shoots drawn, and there's there's little things like where are the riggers, where are the 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 in-flight medics that you're you're also trying to deal with. But we get everybody onto the bird, we get everybody's equipment on the bird, we take off. And we stand up, we're about to start rigging, and the in-flight navigation goes down. So I get a, a, have a conversation with the crew chief, like, hey, we're, we're turning back around. I'm like, oh, no, like, this, this isn't good. We might not get out of this plane. So we fly down. The, you know, the air crews do what they do. They work their magic. They get the in-flight navigation system back up, and we're having you know, more conversations with the air team, like how... How are we going to do this? Because now there's additional com like considerations of where the aircrafts are going to link up in formation, how they're going to get back with the rest of the group. Can they even do that in time and deconflict the airspace that it's going to take for them to kind of take that, that shortcut? And um, the determination was made. We're going to offset our, our, um, our exit by an hour. So. Other aircraft come in. They've been scratched. I've got one one P six, the the battalion commander for for one P on another bird, and his star major comes over to me. He's like, "Please, I need to get one P six to the ground. Do you have anybody you can scratch?" Yep. And we we worked our our magic, executed our bump plan, and so now I've got two P six, brigade XO, and one P six all on my aircraft, ready to exit, and we. We go up, we execute an hour later than we were intending to, and um, and everybody got out of the bird without a hitch, to include myself, and I was worried about red light, but um, yeah, I got out of the bird, and the, we're just, we're adaptable, we were flexible, and the air team, my AJ was fantastic. What, uh, anything inside the aircraft, you know, as, uh, as you saw your one minute reference, uh, what's going through your head? Uh, how heavy my rucksack was. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, because we're we're doing multiple passes, and I was like, oh, gosh, I can't wait to get out of this aircraft. Be strong. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm in the I'm in the door. It's the the third time race tracking, and um and I'm I'm looking at the uh, the one minute reference. I look back, and you know, of course, my number one jumper is just like stoic. I'm like, all right, good. Look at my safety. He's stoic. All right, good. I'm like just trying to put on a strong. <laughs> it was it was not a. I was I was putting on a strong face, but I was definitely feeling the hurt. Yeah. How was your jump? Uh, my jump wasn't bad uh, at at all. There were some people that you know had had trouble. They they landed on the FLS. I mean that's the nature of an airborne yeah. operation. Um, some some injuries, but my my jump overall was was not bad at all. The very low winds, um, soft landing. Uh, it just sucked that I was all the way at the 
southern end of the drop zone and had to go all the way to the northern end of the drop zone. Got your got your steps in. All right, so so you're on the drop zone. You're making way to your assembly area. What'd you see? You know, what good good bad ugly on the drop zone. Um, Democracy in action. Well, (laughs) it's a. On my way up to the northern end of the drop zone, I ran into about four four people that were lost and looking for where they were supposed to go and um, with ranks that would surprise you. <laughs> Probably not. The, um, you know, so of course, you know, pull out the ATAC, say, all right, you know, here's your reference points, Here, here's where you are. This is where you're going. Go get them tied in with people, and just make sure that you know the ACPs have who they have, and and you know the the rifle companies have who they have, and just trying to make sure that that people got to where where they needed to go. Um, heard a little bit of you know skirmishes down south. At, at that point, you know that's like yeah, all right, cool. The things are getting started. You're you start feeling the energy, and you're like, okay, cool, like. We're we're getting into it now. Um, there's kind of like a a separation between when you hit the the drop zone, you immediately put your weapon in action, pull down your NAS, put your radio in action, and and uh, at least for me, there's still there's still a, a small gap in mentality between when I'm ready to fight and then when I hear people fighting. And I'm like, once I hear people fighting, it's like, okay, cool. Like now it's go time. Um, get up to the the Alpha Alpha, see the Steiner Raid, and and um, we still hadn't met Min Four yet. There's you know a lot of confusion because there was offset There's times. So many changes in the, in the airborne plan. And so people are wondering, you know, <clears throat> are we going to execute with what we have? Are we going to execute with less than Min Four? Where is you know the first sergeant? Where is the XO? So who Where was running is... the assembly area when you showed up? Uh, one of my fellow platoon sergeants, Sergeant First Class Green, was uh, my my weapon squad leader. You know, initially got it set up. Sergeant First Class Green came in and and you know gets under his poncho, gets under his whoopee. We had some fighting products that we were using for um, Alpha Alpha, you know, consolidation, special items of equipment. Because when you start talking about jumping sixty pounds, like, it's like all right, well. Here's a hundred rounds of seven six two for this random rifleman. Here's a sixty millimeter mortar for this random rifleman, and so we're going through the process of reconsolidating re- and um, reorganizing all of that equipment as well. Um, but he did an excellent job, competent platoon sergeant. I'm I'm lucky to be peers with him. All right, and then so uh, you, you guys get moving out from the eventually get men force, and where do you head off to? We head up to. Gosh, I'm gonna I'm gonna mess the city up. North uh, eastern city of Tresor. Tresor. Okay. And we. I've had some. I got some bad memories in Tresor. <laughs> Tre, Tresor was uh was interesting because there was nobody in it. Right. It was completely dry, and that was uh that was not what I expected. I anticipated, um, you know, some interaction with some civilians. I I. Figured there was going to be civilians and there was going to be hostiles within the same environment, and I, I thought it was going to you know, be some kind of test of like target discrimination and and not doing the typical thing that we we do in the army of leading with HE into a populated yeah. city. Um, but we went there and it was completely dry. 
I was like, what? Did that freak people out a little bit? It did. It did. It was not, it freaked me out a little bit. I was yeah. like, this is not, it's not a good sign. The cog, you know, I, my, uh, my high school soccer coach, expect the unexpected. And, I mean, I think that that's part in the scenario design is in subtle ways, like, we want to be very unpredictable. Because I think that's, like, one of the big things about combat is, like, you know, you have uh, had, a, had a, before my first deployment with the Two Panther, uh, one of my neighbors uh, was in a SMU and had d done a turn in Afghanistan and we're drinking some beer in their backyard and he's like, hey man, like 99 times out of 100, it's going to be a dry hole. Like you got to be in the headspace to be at that that level of intensity but <coughs> under control so that you can adapt. You got to be ready for it to go bad, but you also have to be like in the headspace that it may not. And that's a really hard place to be uh, and to stay. Um, but that stayed with me through the years. So we we try to give people here like a little bit of a different look at different times to, to help people kind of ride that edge of intensity but keep it under control. Um, I think it was really good for the GWAT veterans too because right. uh, <laughs> when, when, there's, for. <laughs> when there's no civilians around and the place is completely empty, yeah. your spidey senses Since start start going off. Yeah. And so, that, I mean, that was happening with me. I was like, this is not good. This is not good. Like, Did you see the prep fires uh, when you came in, or had they already ceased? They, they'd probably already ceased. Yeah, yeah. so we, we had prep fires. We had a bunch of buildings in Trezor and in Debassier rigged with pyrotechnics. And so when the first pass came in, buildings are exploding, you know, a bunch of stuff going on, which, you know, would cause a bunch of people to flee. I mean, that's what would realistically probably happen. Mm -hmm. So yeah, okay. So you guys, you get through Trezor, you clear Trezor, and then um, th so there was a, a key leader engagement between my commander and um, some of the the folks that were in the city council. They asked for us to to stay and pull security on the town overnight and and do a, a key leader engagement with the mayor uh, the following morning with my commander, which we did. Yeah. Um, pulled security outside of Tresor, again, relatively uneventful. Uh, this is when I think we we probably started interacting without knowing it with the APF or SPF or you know. Right. Was, <laughs> this, I, I I noticed my uh, my first sergeant sees a, a red pickup truck drive through, you know the the roadway, and of course we don't have any class four, we don't have any C wire set up, and we, I don't think that we had transitioned quickly enough to being able to stop civilian vehicle traffic from entering the, the drop zone. So more often than not, they're actually unarmed. Right. Right, because they, they don't want to, you know, but they're collecting, and then uh, they're out there. Um, you know, about, about one in ten of the people that you see out, out, in, uh, out in Arnland are either SBF or ABF. So around. After that happened, it was, everybody was back on high alert, and then we get a group of you know, military-age military, military males that come in a 15-passenger van, and they're, they're hanging out in Tresor, and they have all of the looks like a soldier, acts like a soldier, probably is a soldier. And um, so I'm like, okay, well, we're, we're going we're gonna to puck these guys. We're going to, like... Detain them, 
we're going to you know do some tactical questioning and we're going to figure out what's what's what here and make sure that this isn't you know 15 APF or SPF that have a weapons cache somewhere here yeah. they're going to go you know move on to the drop zone and they turned out to be you know um, civilians that were you know part of the the neo um, exercise that were were yeah. intended to be evac but later on we yeah, did AMSETs. Yeah, they, we, had, <laughs> we had AMSIVs. Um, later on, we actually did in, end up intercepting a uh, APF or SPF. But this vehicle. is one of the keys. I mean, you listen to Geronimo 6 talk. The units that rapidly establish security and start controlling the environment um, and, and controlling uh, do really well, right? And they limit the, you know, you know, courteous, professional, polite within the the construct of love, armed conflict. Um, but a lot of units don't get to that until like train day five mm. and a lot of lots being collected on them, right? And there's a right way to do it. Um, you know, it sounds like you guys did it the right way. All right, and then so you guys kept moving and that's where you and I ran into each other. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh we're we're crossing uh an LDA over by the war memorial and I've got my my little posse of of injured folks behind me that like we need to get evac'd, we just haven't had the resources to evac them yet. And so luckily like they were in shape enough to to continue the walk so we continue on our movement and I remember seeing you and you were given uh, one of my team leaders just a, a really odd look because, of course, he's walking without his helmet on. He had a he had a TBI, and I was like, "Oh no, sir, he's got a TBI. That's why he's got his helmet <laughs> yeah, off." Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like, "Okay, all right." So, um, and then we get up to Low Water Crossing 12, I think it was at that time, and establish some security, and then um, continue on with the interception of APF and SBF. At that point, we hadn't had any. Uh, any type of fires on us, observed fires. Um, we didn't have any interactions with um, like conventional forces, yeah. but we did end up intercepting a SPF or APF so vehicle there. How much, um, you know, what was the state of the formation, right? Like you, you, you've been up, you go through this airborne timeline. That's a very stressful and emotional experience in a lot of ways. It's like being born in a lot of ways, right? Um, you know, assemble, move all night, um, you know, kind of these ups and downs of are we going to make contact, are we not going to make contact, and then it's like mid-afternoon. Where's everybody at mentally and emotionally and physically at that point? I I would like to say that we were tired, but I think that at this point tired's relative because we were nowhere near as tired as we were on yeah. day six. Morgan Freeman voice. In fact, they were not tired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? yes. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm sure that we felt tired, we felt sleepy, but for the most part, um, all of all my people were turned on, and and uh, I think that's just a byproduct of, um, you know, uh, our brigade commander talks to us about you know, hey, we're a light infantry unit, and the only difference between us and every every other light infantry unit is like jumping out of airplanes the way that we get to work. And so as soon as, if you, if you take that seriously and you take the rest recuperation, um, you take the prep, like the, the personal prep, nutrition, sleep, all that seriously on the front end, 
yes, the airborne timeline is a smoker, but then you know we we sat in an alpha alpha, we managed security, we when we went to Tracer, we managed security in a way that made sense, made got guys into a, a rest plan. Um, I actually have very very little uh, criticism of of everything up to that point as far as like personnel management. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think the key is like we manage it, right? Right. Like we we acknowledge that we've got a window where we probably need to be at one third security. We need to put people on a rest cycle. We have another third that's either doing planning or we may even have some folks out on some limited patrols, right? And this rule of thirds, like we constantly have to have a third in security all the time. But if we're not, we're robbing the bank if we're not like getting people into a rest cycle somewhere in there. Um, you know, and I think the other is, um, you know, you got to live hard to be hard, right? And you got to do hard things to, to get to the place that you understand, like, really where you're really tired, right? Like, people have a, you know, the, the uh, I very distinctly remember getting a brief on Ranger School, you know, and it's like, um, you know, most people in their civilian lives are operating. Uh, at about 20% of their physical capacity at any given time. If you're in the Army, uh, you know, and you do a high-end training event, you, you know, home station, you're, you're probably operating at about 40, maybe 50% of what you think. Uh, you do something like this, you go to Ranger School, you're now operating around 75%, right, of what, of your limits, right? 100% is death, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And, we're, we're all capable of doing a lot more than we realize. We just we seldom are pushed to those points. And so the more that we creep up to those points, uh, the more comfortable we get being uncomfortable. Sure. And, uh, I think that's completely accurate. And I think, you know, when, you're, when you, when you live, live the life of a paratrooper, um, you get practice at doing that. Sometimes it's, it's only in three- or four-day increments. It's, it's seldom in a 14-day increment like this. But... Uh, but you get practice at it, and you get practice at how you manage those rest cycles as a group, how you manage yourself internally, and then it's really this, as you described, the value of do you take care of yourself physically, uh, your nutrition, your hydration, your rest, uh, to, be, to be able to do this you know, at peak performance. All right, so we get up to low water 12. Um, wh- what, do we, what do we think we're doing at low water 12? So... At low water 12, we get the call that the, the intent is to not stay in anywhere for longer than 12 hours. And so yeah. that's a... Um, Don't get got. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, that's, that's a, a, a signal of, okay, like we need to manage transitions well. Um, how do we rapidly establish security and immediate and rapidly conduct priorities of work in order to maximize that rest plan um, in order to to maximize the preparedness and then how do we rapidly transition to right now it's time to move um, while maintaining security and so you know the the friction points that we start leaning against are, are what do the transitions look like and I, I talk about being lucky to have the folks that I have in my formation I've got, you know, three team leaders that are all Ranger qualified. That all, like, they they've been through yeah. the the hard days yep. before. This they've is they've not, been at seventy five percent. This is not unfamiliar territory <laughs> yeah. to them. So you know, when we're p- 
positioning strong points like it's understood that it's in positions of three because it makes it just makes life easier for us. Okay, we we don't have to readjust security when we dropped at 33%. We don't have to readjust security when we execute a a, a maintenance plan. Um, you know the the security is is established. Now let's not mess with that anymore. It's the security is the security, and the way that we manage that is by positioning them in, in things of three. And there's just there's just little tips and, and tricks like that that just make life easy for for folks you know that are they're going through the priorities of work and going through establishing that security that you only learn when you're when you've been through those hard moments and you've had a position of two that in the middle of the night at three in the morning now you have to readjust security with a you know a sleepy guy over here in this position and you go back and you check may have gotten me a no-go in mountain face <laughs> everybody's been i may have given people no-goes in mountain face for that yeah all right so uh what, when's the, what was your first contact, direct fire contact with Geronimo? I guess I shouldn't say that. What was your first contact with Geronimo proper? Um, Maybe it was by UAS or indirect fire. Right. Yeah. I, well, I, our first, oh, okay. Um, we were pushing to low water crossing 11. Uh, so we, we got the call, like, hey, you're not going to stay anywhere for more than 12 hours. Um, we're going to transition you from 12, you're going to continue to move west, and you're going to go to low water crossing 11. And as we're, as we're crossing a draw leading up to low water crossing 11, I look over and I see one of the OCs pull out <laughs> the blue god gun. You know this trick. <laughs> And I was like, oh, no, here, it's happening. here it comes. It's happening. Uh, and I just mentally prepared myself. So for whatever reason, the, the front of the formation stopped, completely unrelated to that. And we, we start receiving accurate and effective IDF. And it's, it was like first rounds, six casualties. It's like, okay, well, there's clearly observers. There, you don't receive, you know, first first rounds accurate and effective uh, without observers. So there's observers here. Now we got to find them. So now we're, you know, clearing ground. We have casualties. First step: deal with the fight, eliminate the threat. Um, so we start trying to clear ground, and you know, my platoon and the next platoon across the road are just a little bit off center, and. I remember we're, we're clearing forward, and I look backwards, and I see two little OD green uniforms run across the road, right, like in in the seam of where we were at. And I was like, "Oh, these these they're sneaky. They, they know were, what they're doing. They were very sneaky, and um, it was it was rough. And I'm glad that it happened because it was amazing to see just how how effective." Two people were at desynchronizing an entire company formation. It it really like it, it they, put us did, on our heels. Did immediately. they engage you with direct fire? They didn't. Right. <laughs> they didn't. It, all it was was a radio. Two guys with a radio right. calling in direct fire, and it was very effective. And we had no idea where they were, and we were trying to clear the ground, and they were just 
you know, being really effective at, at just being paratroop. And that was also a sign to me, like, don't underestimate Geronimo. Like, if you come here and you don't take Geronimo seriously and you don't respect their skill set, you're going to get kicked in the teeth. Yeah. Um, well, and they're not out there by themselves. No. Right? You know, and this is like, so, you know, what you're describing, your formation is like the lead edge of, like, where we got to be, right? The next level is like, okay, we have OPs out. We have security in front of us. We, make, we, make, we don't make contact with the enemy by direct fire. We make contact with a small UAS. We make contact with a scout or an observer forward. We use indirect fire um, because that preserves combat power, right. right? And they are really, really good at that. Like that's their that's their jam, <laughs> right? It was effective. All right, all right. And then so so we're up at low water eleven, and taught me through life at low water eleven. When when did we transition to the defense? Uh, so we actually end up getting a, a call to move away from low water eleven and go to objective Caldwell, which is a it's a, a little bit east of Ranchero 45. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, intersection of artillery and another major uh, MSR that's traveling north-south. And um, it, it had previously been decimated. Uh, another company had, had been there and, and they... It was not there anymore. Was not, <laughs> it was not there, yeah. Uh, so they, they called us to go reinforce that position because it was key terrain, and um, it was essential to the, the control of those MSRs to the north of the uh, drop zone and controlling the access onto the drop zone. So we go there, and we're looking around, and it was not by any means ideal territory to defend. It was pretty pretty open. And that's nice when... You have, you know, crew serves that are, are engaging at the reach and range of their, you know, max effective. Um, but it is, it's tough in the sense, uh, it's, it's a trade-off in the sense that we didn't have any kind of natural obstacles to tie in tactical obstacles with. So engagement area development was, was a little difficult within that terrain. And I think ultimately we ended up doing an okay job. Um, with engagement area development. Um, I think we did well with protective obstacles, and I think we could have done much better with our, our tactical obstacles and then developing in depth. But while we were there, um, we, we received you know, several attacks with you know, um, technical vehicles and then uh, had a couple of BMPs roll through that night, and then we were engaging... Uh, I think uh, the first night was a platoon size element of dismounts, potentially platoon plus, and then the the we transitioned to the defense after that. So, I it's hard for me to say that we transitioned to a defense because it constantly felt like a defense from the moment we arrived at Caldwell. Yeah. No, I mean the um, yeah as a brigade we we uh, we struggled to get a security area in front of us. Right, and then at the battalion level, we struggled to get it secure, and this is across the board, and this is pretty common, right? And so, like, what you're experiencing in some ways is the consequence of not having a security area, right? And it's really, really hard to do defensive prep, engagement area development, when you got somebody, you know, punching the nose <laughs> every right four to six hours, yeah. right? And um, 
you know, and so the options are either you commit combat power and you push out and, and, and are able to get that security established, or, you know, you become the security area and then somebody behind you really gets effective time and space to, to build an engagement area. It's super hard. And it's not something that we really experience oftentimes in home station training. It's really hard to kind of replicate at scale in home station training. Um, yeah, everybody fights for the key terrain, and then the, the clock is going, and it's like, okay, where's the time uh, for defensive prep? And so you know, the night before, I think you guys defended you know, Geronimo intentionally. Mm -hmm. and, you know, launched a series of small uh, reconnaissance and force to really confirm deny locations of units, but also to disrupt uh, engagement area development. And I, so the 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 podcast that you did with Lieutenant Colonel Fitzgerald. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, you went to school. It. Uh, <laughs> I wrote a uh, I wrote a five page analysis on that podcast. All I right. still have it on my you, computer. You gonna share it with me? I I'll email it to you, sir. That'd be great. But I I have a five page analysis on that podcast with timestamps talking about like how I thought Geronimo was going to fight us, and in some ways I was wrong. But the, this was actually one of the ways in which I was proud to say, like, I was right, that yeah. they were going to prioritize reconnaissance, sometimes in force, in order to disrupt, but more importantly, to just locate all of the units so that they knew where everybody was at. Because in that podcast, Lieutenant uh, Colonel Fitzgerald says, like, if I can place every company on a map, then I, th I have a pretty good idea of what I think that that brigade's course of action is going to be. Are they going to push north? Are they going to push south? Are they going to push both? Um, and so the, the, we definitely experienced that early on, and we experienced the effects of the disruption um, of engagement area development. Because not only do you have the inter interruption of time and the interruption of planning, but you also have the, inter the interruption of sleep. Yeah. You have the interruption of you know, rest, recuperation, all of the priorities of work. It's hard for me to say, all right, let's move into weapons maintenance 20 minutes after a fight. It's like there's, there's, a, there's a period after which where we have to make sure that, like, okay, there's still nothing Coming. Going, going on. Yeah. The, this wasn't the lead element of a, of a company or, yeah. you know, a battalion. It's hard when the enemy has the initiative. They definitely did. Yeah. And, uh, and we, I mean, we suffered through that, and ultimately... This is when we started getting tired. Uh, this is low water crossing twelve was was nothing compared to um, the transition that night, the night of the defense, and the transition to the offense. The transition to the offense was kind of the culmination of yeah. of the the sleep deprivation. Where you saw the wizard. That that was we were definitely seeing you know shadow rangers off in the <laughs> periphery. So let's let's talk the defense and the defense fight. Okay. Uh, how, how did, uh, so we got pretty good protective obstacles. Talk me through how you did that at the platoon level. What was the task and purpose that you were given? Uh, how did you fit into, how did your platoon fit into the, the company and the battalion fight? So we were, um, we were establishing a, a blocking position um, along artillery road. And we had two platoons adjacent to my platoon's blocking position. Because of the previous night, our manning had been degraded. We'd evacuated some casualties. And essentially, I had, it came to the point that I had somewhere to the tune of like 12 people in my platoon that were going to build the fighting positions 
for the entire platoon once you know once they were RTD or reconstituted or, or whatever you know we we received in real life whatever replacements. replacements. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've this got is like some straight up World War II stuff. It was it was rough, and so it's it's me and eleven others you know, digging these fighting positions um, in, in preparation. But uh, so we, as a, as a company, were locking down Artillery Road, establishing a blocking position on Artillery Road and the main MSR. We called it uh, MSR Ford. I'm not sure what the actual name of that MSR is. But um, in order to prevent um, yeah, essentially counter-mobility onto the, the drop zone. And... We had some engineers come out and build some counter-mobility obstacles. We had an 11-row to our, to our west. Um, we had a couple of triple-strand, like simple obstacles to our north. And I had two platoons that so were overwatching the main intersection, and then my platoon was to the north, essentially as a, almost like a flank security for them. Um, and there was there was talk about the anticipated um, enemy's primary direction of travel was going to be north south. It didn't end up working like that, so we ended up being essentially a flank security for them. But they were anticipating it was going to be north to south, and that we would be the first ones to make contact um, with regard to like if that was the enemy course of action. So. It, I, I had a weird piece of terrain because I had this 35-meter, you know, five-foot-high berm that had excellent fields of fire down the roads that allowed me to engage, you know, mobility coming from north to south and allowed me to provide flank security. But directly in front of me, I had about... 25 meters of view because of the the terrain that was that was in front of me right on the other side of the road it dropped off and it was all dead space and so we made the decision like we have to have some type of blocking obstacle and um, we did a, a couple of weird things um, when you have degraded manning and you have very little you know, class four at the moment, we ended up getting more class four later on. Uh, we made the decision to just, you know, employ deceptive techniques. It was actually one of the key tasks in the, the brigade commander's, um, commander's intent was, like, employ deception, have fake talks, have fake satellite dishes. And so we kind of came up with the idea, why not have fake obstacles? Like, if I, if I can't produce real obstacles right now, then let me try to influence this by producing some fake obstacles because it takes very little time, very little effort, and it, at the very least, at least it gives them pause. Um, so we threw out some fake obstacles and then we actually ended up in placing those protective obstacles while the commander and platoon leader were focused on the employment of the tactical obstacles. So we kind of split efforts where I was worried about protective and the, the commander and platoon leader were worried about tactical and affecting the tactical fight and how that would feed into us. And then from there, it was all about building really good positions with you know good fields of fire and clearly defining them. The most important thing we did was developing discipline engagement criteria 
um, communicating that engagement criteria, disengagement criteria to you know, paratroopers on, at the lowest level. And I think that that's probably something that gets forgotten a lot of times because that's the most important yeah. thing. Yeah, there's a tendency, you know, when the enemy comes to the engagement area, if we haven't done that, that everybody fires, right? We give up the crew serve right away. Uh, we give up AT system on something that's actually not, doesn't require a javelin to shoot at it. Um, did you guys dig? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we were, we were chest deep. Okay. We, we Chest deep with overhead cover. You guys was, got overhead cover. We, we, I, was, I was proud of the overhead cover. All right. And so, you know, commitment to dig in. Did you guys take indirect fire in the defense? We did. All right. Often. All right. And how did the overhead cover work for you? Uh, well, it. I, I'll, I'll reverse my statement. We had overhead concealment. Oh, okay. <laughs> the um, so we we had essentially logs, and yeah. then uh, we didn't have the 18 inches of dirt. So the, it it worked okay for us because it, if we're if we're looking at this from like the the standpoint of like what would happen if it was real life. The, the second, the first round is landing. People were, people were essentially living that night in the actual hole. So, like, first round splash, you got one person pulling security, everybody else is, like, down in the hole. Um, so I think it, appropriately risk to force was, was managed well yeah. um, by just having those, those chesty, those name tape defilade uh, fighting positions with that overhead concealment, which primarily helped us with the direct fire engagements because it, it masked the the silhouette you know of the of the position we did very well with even though the drama knew that there was a company there they still had no idea that that was our fighting position and when we our our Jason platoon was in a fight and we were sitting there and we're watching them fight they're in a fight with you know another platoon which isn't ideal so another platoon is reinforcing them and we could see that company, like headquarters element. I could see what I knew was a commander or a platoon leader just up on a knee, out in the open, just looking over this piece of high terrain, just, just watching the fight. I'm like, okay, so that's, that's who we're shooting first. And then we start seeing you know, some, some maneuver onto the flank, and that's when we opened up. And luckily they didn't see us the entire time. And when we opened up, it was it was shock and awe for them, which yeah. is what we wanted to achieve. Right. It was it was uh, some surprise, but then you know, all right, now they know we're here, and we're in a fight at 25 meters. Were you able to get indirect fire in the fight? Uh, the yes. So the the 60s were in the fight um, heavily. The there was some struggle with the the 81s and the communication chain. Um, you know, all the way up to battalion fires. I think that at that that night, I don't know how much 81 support we got, but um, I know they were definitely trying. Yeah. No, I mean, this is something as a brigade, you know, haven't seen the whole kind of thing. We, we struggled in the defense uh, to get really kind of past company and battalion mortars to get, mm -hmm. to get artillery in the fight effectively, um, which would have been a game changer. Uh, frankly, because uh, up north where Two Panther was, y'all held up Geronimo for, for almost two hours. Um, and it would have been devastating if we'd gotten field artillery in the fight. 
uh, the good news is we got there later in the rotation where we were pretty effective with artillery. Talk to me about employment of AT systems. So uh, when we got our AAR at the very end, uh, I think one of the best compliments that we received was no matter every time that we got in a fight with 2P, there was an, an AT system engaging within 90 seconds. And I think that that was absolutely key to the LISCO fight and the, the success that we experienced in JRTC. You know, we had some failures, but I think one of the, the things that we did very well was employ, employing AT systems. And I, I think you have to have a decentralized mindset when it comes to um, employing AT systems. You have to be comfortable with you know, task, purpose, go. You know, in in the offense, in the in the defense, it was m very planned out. Like, okay, this spot has what would be a good keyhole to engage, you know, enemy at this intersection. Let's go reduce, you know, the the fields of fire so that we can actually like get a good engagement. That's a game changer here. People that actually prepare their fields of fire in the defense. Um, you know, are, are far more lethal. And then, you know, one of the things I heard from an OCT was in your formation, um, the folks carrying javelins uh, understood that that was their primary weapon system and the M4 was their secondary weapon system. And I agree with you in the offense, like we, we you know, clear engagement criteria, good graphic control measures enable us to be decentralized and employ AT systems offensively. Um, but we gotta be able to do it in a way that allows us to be very permissive because we're not going to have fratricide either from the AT gunner or we're not going to end up inadvertently killing our own AT guys right. uh, when they go out there. All right. Hey, um, so give me the big, you know, this takes us to about training day five. and We're going to come back. We're going to do a second bit here. But give me, um, you know, give me your big, before we break here, give me your big kind of takeaways from, from that first fight before we went into ARs. Like what, what did you? What was your impressions of that first five days, kind of overall? Um, I was actually, I would say I was very impressed with Geronimo. And that was, um, we were on the receiving end of what was clearly synchronized warfighting functions. And I knew exactly what was happening. And I, I had very little control over ways to affect it. Yeah. It was it was on, we, we were successful because our paratroopers are outstanding and they give a hell of a fight. But as far as like the command and control to be on the receiving end of what is clearly very synchronized warfighting functions is, I mean, it was both a beautiful and terrifying experience yeah. where I was like, okay, dilemma over here. There's a squad size element. We start maneuvering on them. Oh no, there's a technical vehicle over here. And now I hear BMPs coming down the road. Now there's smoke in vicinity of our obstacle. Oh no, they're doing SOSRA right now. They're they're about to hit they're us with the, these BMPs. They're doing the thing. <laughs> they're doing and and there's indirect fires incorporated. And it was it was beautifully executed. And uh, I think in that moment, uh, to me, and this this could be. It might be a little weird, but I was like, okay, Geronimo is, like, showing us how to do this. Bingo. <laughs> they're, they're literally showing us, like, yes. how to do this. Yep. And if we just pay attention, then, like, we, we can we do can this, too, and when we transition to the offense. All right. Well, hey, we're going to wrap up this episode, and we're going to bring you back in, in 
do one more the rest of the time, uh, your time here in our land. Thanks. All right, sir. Thank you for joining us on The Crucible, the JRTC experience. The Joint Readiness Training Center is the premier crucible training experience. We prepare units to fight and win in the most complex environments against world-class opposing forces. We are America's leadership laboratory. Again, we'd like to thank our guests for participating. This podcast was created and produced by Mr. John Mabes. It was recorded and edited by Chief Thomas Rich and researched by First Lieutenant Anthony Cho. Intro vocals were done by Mr. Robert Chopper. Special thanks to Captain Jermaine Branch and Mr. Jeff England from Public Affairs. Be sure to like and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest warfighting TTPs learned through the crucible that is the Joint Readiness Training Center. Follow us by going to https colon forward slash forward slash l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e forward slash j-r-t-c. We'd like to thank our partners at the Center for Army Lessons Learned of the Combined Arms Center, especially the JRTC Call Observations Detachment. Be sure to follow them on social media as well. Follow them at https colon forward slash forward slash www.army.mil forward slash C-A-L-L. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review us wherever you listen or watch your podcasts. And be sure to stay tuned for more in the near future. The Crucible, the JRTC experience, is a product of the Joint Readiness Training Center.